Welcome to Season 6 of the Marrow Masters Podcast Series, sponsored by the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, Insight Corporation, and Cadman. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and their families cope with the psychosocial challenges of transplant, from diagnosis through survivorship. This season focuses on advice for dealing with GVHD from both patients and healthcare professionals. Here's your host, Executive Director of the NBMT Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Welcome, everyone. This series focuses on all things GVHD. We're going to peel back some of the layers. We're going to talk to experts and patients alike about their struggles, victories, best tips, and so much more. So get ready. Get ready to be inspired, educated, and updated on this tricky disease. GVHD might be a part of your life post-transplant, but we want you to know and be encouraged that it is most likely temporary. We're going to learn from healthcare professionals and survivors who want to share it with you so that you can beat GVHD and thrive despite it. You'll appreciate their grit, honesty, and determination to live your best life with their guidance and experiences. So today we welcome Meredith Cowden. Meredith is a clinical counselor from Ohio who is also a long-term survivor who knows all too well the many aspects of chronic graft-versus-host disease. Meredith is also a friend. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Meredith is going to share her incredible journey with us now. So Meredith, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. Let's start with your diagnosis and timeline. Yeah. So let's see. When I was 19 years old, I was a freshman in college. I went to art school and I was diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia. And it was an interesting kind of uh, diagnosis story because I, you know, I went to the university clinic and I thought I had the flu and then it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And then eventually they figured out that it was uh, leukemia. So it was quite the journey to be diagnosed initially. So I was diagnosed in Cincinnati and then I came home. I grew up in Akron. I came home to Akron and I was treated at Akron Children's Hospital for my first round of chemotherapy. And that was an interesting kind of experience because I was 19. I wasn't quite pediatric, but I also wasn't quite adult. I was in that AYA area, which is kind of tricky to navigate sometimes. And so I've had both experiences of being on a pediatric unit as well as being on an adult unit. And so that's just an interesting thing to think about sometimes. I started out at Akron General and had the chemotherapy. It really didn't work quite well because the kind of leukemia that I had was so aggressive. Then the doctor who was treating me there knew the transplant doctor at the Cleveland Clinic who has been my doctor for 20 years. So then she referred me to him to hopefully have a bone marrow transplant. They did lots of testing of people to see if anyone was a match. turned out my sister was a perfect match. And so she was my donor. So I went to the Cleveland Clinic, the transplant unit, and I had my transplant on September 12th of 2001. So it was the day after 9-11, which was, yeah, right? I mean, like, geez, that in and of itself created a whole lot of mental and emotional stuff that I had to work through because of it and because it was so close. And I had a lot of issues that I relate to that specifically just when I reflect on it around, you know, worth as well as more uh, survivor's guilt than potentially perhaps would have occurred otherwise. So that happened and then had my transplants and my birthday is October 3rd 
and I was determined to be at home for my birthday. I really, really wanted to be just at my home. And so I did it. Like I, I got home, I think. Great. Right? I got like two days before my birthday. And I still remember it. It was one of the best birthdays I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Oh, yeah. And then later on in the month of October, that's when I started to develop symptoms of acute graft versus host disease. So pretty quickly after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is the definition of acute. Okay, that's going to lead us right into the wonderful topic of chronic graft-versus-host disease. So what happened next and what were your your main issues? Yeah, so with the acute uh, graft-versus-host disease, I was lucky because I had more mild versions and because it can be pretty severe and serious for people. The way that it started for me, I had GVHD on my skin. It started to feel like my skin was burning and it was hard to wear clothing sometimes. It was hard to have things touch my skin because it just burned a lot. And then I also had like a pretty upset GI tract and like it it really affected my belly and my um, stomach pretty badly. So it was hard to eat. My skin was burning. And so when we talked to Matt Calacio, my doctor, you know, he said, well, this is what you have. You have uh, graft versus host disease, which had been talked about a little bit before my transplant. I'm sure more than I'm remembering but not extensively. And it was more of like, let's hope that doesn't happen. Okay. And then that's, you know, I developed graft versus host disease. And so then I've had it since then. I was at a conference earlier this year and I was saying, you know, the only time since October of 2001 that I've not been on prednisone has been for like a couple of weeks in the beginning of January of 2020. That's it. Really? Yeah. Which is, nutty, right? I mean, it's absolutely nuts. But you know, it's the miracle drug, right? Like it's the thing that's supposed to help with GVHD. And you know, it does work, but there are a lot of things that go along with it that are really, you know, quite intense. Okay. So they started me on high doses of prednisone and then, you know, it really is a roller coaster. So then after that, it kind of calmed down. And then after my 100 day time period, Then I started to get more GVHD and it was similar. It was the same. It was my skin, my stomach. And then gradually over the years, I've developed GVHD, I think in pretty much every possible part of my body that can be. You know, I um, joked once that I think my spleen is okay, but other than that, it's, you know, (laughs) like that's it. And that's been quite an experience of, you know, having this chronic illness that is pervasive through like throughout my entire body. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's quite a process in in figuring out how to manage it and how to cope with it. Well, to look at you, you would never guess that you have dealt with the GVHD that you have dealt with and you, you never complain and you just seem to get through it. So let's talk about this foundation. Yeah. (laughs) So how did that happen? Right. (laughs) Let's see. It was in 2005 and 2006. I I was having like a pretty like a pretty severe flare of GVHD, but they didn't recognize it as that. So it was, um, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And my muscles, I got really weak. My muscles hurt really, really badly. I, I had trouble walking. I had trouble like just moving in general. And eventually they figured out that it was, you know, at that particular time, I think it's more common now, but at that particular time, 
this form of GVHD was more rare and it's polymyositis. And I had polymyositis alongside of hypercalcemia. And so my body was just freaking out. (laughs) So when we were trying to deal with this, that was when my family and I had a particularly difficult time in finding resources and finding information, especially on what we could do at home. There's, you know, only so much that you can do when you're going to see the doctor and the doctor's doing what they can do, but it can be really frustrating if you can't figure out what it is that you could potentially do at home. Sure. And so we couldn't find anything. And, you know, my dad, he's a go-getter. You know, my dad. Yes, he is. (laughs) He really is. We were talking about it the one day, this was in 2007. So this was after I had, you know, recovered from that really, really severe bout. And he, you know, talked about what if we start a foundation so that, you know, other families, other people don't have to experience the same kinds of, you know, confusion and fear and anxiety and all of these stressors. And if there's a way that we can do that, let's do that. And so we started the Meredith A. Cowden Foundation um, and, and you've heard me joke about this, that I haven't loved the name. I'm getting more <laughs> comfortable with the name, but it's, you know, I'm getting used to it. That's because you're such a humble soul. Well, thank you. But it just it feels <laughs> that weird. That is why. It just feels goofy. I don't no, know. No, it doesn't. Not no. to the rest of us. Well, that's good. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> so basically the thing that we've done over the years is we ha- we've had fundraisers and, you know, different kinds of events to fund specifically our GVHD symposium. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I personally really, really appreciate about it and that I think is really important is that it brings together patients and providers in the medical community. And so they can have the kinds of conversations that maybe they can't have elsewhere, like within the, you know, the doctor's office setting or the hospital. And so there are a lot of really great things that have come out of being able to have those conversations. With the foundation, some of the things that we've done, we've been able to provide support groups for patients as well as caregivers. You know, I've talked at a lot of different conferences. You know, we've provided information and helped people connect with some specific kind of doctor. Like if they have ocular GVHD, we know who they can talk to. And so we can help put them in contact with that person. And I think, you know, it's just, it's a good resource for people to have. Absolutely. Well, and I think too, for the medical providers, it seems like they seem to really appreciate it as well, which is good. And there's also, if I remember correctly, there's a research component too. Don't you guys donate money for research? Yes, we donate money to, now it's the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And right now there's a specific um, research project that's happening that we that we are helping that's focused on GVHD. Oh, great. Yeah. And then there are a lot of um, other ways that we're helping, not necessarily in the funding so much, but participating on advisory committees for the research uh, to help provide the patient perspective. Terrific. That is great news. So Meredith, let's break it down. Let's talk about 20 years with chronic graft-versus-host disease. Let's give the best tips you've got for newbies. Yeah. So I think that some of the most important things are really around acceptance and acceptance of 
as has been talked about, you know, the new normal, right? Like sort of a, a recreation of what life is supposed to look like. Because, you know, my life certainly doesn't look like what I thought it was going to look like. (laughs) Sure. But along with the acceptance process is also patience because you have to be patient with yourself, your body, and how things are just going to work out in general. Because the disease is very much like a roller coaster. You have flares and sometimes you know what the, like for myself, sometimes I can tell what the triggers are when I reflect and I look back. I can say, okay, I was in the sun for a little bit too long that time. You know, I can recognize that. So acceptance, certainly patience, self-awareness, like know your body, know your body really, really well and listen to your body. Because sometimes, actually, there are a lot of situations where our minds don't necessarily remember things, but our bodies do. And so that's when we get that like sort of gut feeling that's like this because this feels kind of weird. This is not, I don't know, there's something going on here, but mentally we can't figure it out. And so listening to your body can help in identifying like, okay, let's figure out what's really going on for me here. And I think too, along with that, the mind-body connection is also just the like a holistic perspective, you know, like taking care of yourself, mind, body, spirit, so all of it, because the disease is so complex that it affects every part. And it's the same going vice versa, right? So the way that we are spiritually can affect how the disease, like how severe it gets. There are all sorts of studies and lots of information out there that talk about the impact of hope, optimism, spirituality, all of these different things that really make a difference on our physical well-being and our health. And so I'm, I wholeheartedly believe in definitely focusing on all areas of life, all aspects of life and maintaining balance. Because, you know, one of the things that I find useful is, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, like the spoon theory. I've heard of that. It came from a young lady who I, I, I apologize. I can't remember exactly what her illness. Well, we can put it in the show notes. So okay. yeah, we'll make sure people can access that. Okay, perfect. But you know, it talks about dividing up your your day and your time and your energy by spoons. And so you figure out like, okay, at the beginning of a day, you have 12 spoons. Do you really have 12 spoons? And how many spoons <laughs> does it take to take a shower? You know, maybe it takes two spoons, so then you're left with 10 for the rest of the day. And so really figuring out a way to balance out your energy so you're not burnt out by the end of the day or on like floored for two days after that, you know, and also just thinking about ways that nutrition and all of exercise and all of these different kinds of things can play a role in well-being. That's great, Meredith. We had a gentleman who talked, I can't remember which podcast, but he thinks of his body as a fully charged battery at the beginning of the day. Uh-huh. Same idea. Yeah, totally. He knows it's going to be a dead battery you know, Mm -hmm. after dinner time or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he plans accordingly what he has to do to keep that charge going all day. Yeah. And I think it's the same idea. It totally is. Yeah. That's just so important for people to remember. I I remember another gentleman who said, you know, if I, I don't know, cut wood all day, I'd be in bed for the next two days. So I learned to do maybe half an hour of cutting wood instead of trying to do four hours of it. Right. And then I didn't end up in bed for two, three days missing life. So I think Mm -hmm. it's just like you're saying, adjusting and listening to your body. Mm -hmm. 
so that you can live as normal a life as possible. Mm -hmm. What is your biggest GVHD issues 20 years out? Because I I want people to know that most of it will burn out, but what is your persistent issue? You're absolutely right. It will. For a lot of people, it burns out, which, you know, I think is something definitely for people to remember. My biggest issue is still the polymyositis. Okay. That has consistently been with me since 2005 or six, whenever it first started. Can you explain what that is a little bit, Meredith? So polymyositis, it's actually, um, it's an autoimmune disease and it's where your muscles atrophy. Okay. And so your immune system, for some reason, recognizes your muscular tissue or your muscle tissue as foreign. And so it breaks it down. And so your muscles just kind of uh, die. Okay. Most of the time, people experience it more as weakness or muscle fatigue. And there are situations, there are cases where people experience it as pain as well. And unfortunately, I got the pain part too. Um, But one of the things that I will say is that I, I actually appreciate it because it's easier for me to recognize the pain than it is for me to realize that I'm more tired going up and down the stairs than I was three days ago. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, and I have like specific spots on my body where when I start to get pain, I'm like, oh, uh-oh, something's happening. And what do you do for it? Can you adjust your day or? Yeah. So I usually what I do is I try to, you know, back up a little bit and I try to rework what I'm planning to do for the day. And I think that's actually another really great tip is having like flexibility with everything. Mm -hmm. And so then I can adjust how much, you know, physical energy I'm exerting so that I can, you know, calm my body down because it's basically, you know, your body's in high alert. So it's kind of attacking itself. So it's, it needs to calm down. So then I usually wait for a bit and then I contact my nurse. Okay. And talk to my doctor about it and just to see what's going on. One of the other things that I do that is kind of time consuming, but also very helpful for me is I document it. You know, I went to art school and so I I draw a little person and I have, so I think there are apps that people can do this with. And I use different shades of color to represent if there's fatigue, pain, if I have like brain fog and I just color in my little person. Okay. And so I can track it from, you know, like a month ago, this is what was going on and this is what's going on now. It helps me remember because there are a lot of times when I I just can't. Sure. I just can't, you know, remember exactly what was going on. That's neat. I'm sure that would be helpful to other people just to track that kind of thing in whatever creative way Mm -hmm. works for them. Yeah. So you mentioned your nurse. Let's talk about the role providers play in managing chronic GVHD. Oh my gosh, they're amazing, right? So (laughs) (laughs) I love them. One of the things that I was thinking about before, you know, sitting down for this is frankly, they're more like family, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think because so much time is spent with them and talking to them and getting their input and, and they're there with you throughout the whole process. They're there for the good days. They're there for the bad days. And they're professional caregivers. They want you to feel better and they want to help you. And so, you know, I think they play a a really, really important and specific role. 
I do think that one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is the idea about the relationship between the providers and the patients. And I think that, you know, historically, it's been that providers have been the experts, right? Mm -hmm. The medical providers are the experts. They know the medicine. They know what to do, which is true. Patients are also experts. Patients are experts of themselves, their bodies, their experiences. And caregivers, like family member caregivers or partner caregivers or whomever, are also experts. They're frankly experts of pretty much everything. You know, I mean, they, <laughs> they're amazing to me. And so, you know, I like to try to think of it like thinking about working with a provider more as a partnership and as teamwork not as this person is telling me I need to take this pill or they're telling me this is what I need to do. We're having a conversation about it and we're going to figure out what works best for me and my body from their standpoint, my standpoint, and my caregiver's standpoint. I want to think more about that sort of collaborative piece of it and working together and how can we work more as a team and less as separate entities if that makes any sense. That totally makes sense. I guess it makes me think of the people, though, that don't live anywhere near their center. Mm -hmm. You know, when they, they get back home, any thoughts on the relationship with the transplant center versus the relationship with your primary care physician, let's say? Well, you know, the relationship with the transplant center, I think is, it seems to me that patients are more trustworthy of the transplant center providers. And they, mm -hmm. you know, because this is what they do day in, day out. Whereas, you know, the primary care providers in the community who are general practitioners and who do excellent, excellent work, but don't have the specific necessary training that the transplant providers do. And so, you know, I think, you know, it's important and this kind of goes along with the communication and then the collaboration. So there's a way that information that is at the transplant center that the providers at the transplant center have is easily accessible to the patients and the general practitioners. And, you know, whatever that may might happen to look like, if that's specific to training or if it's specific to like consultation where there's like actual communication and talking and not just sort of here are the notes. Okay, let's see what we can figure out. I think that could make a very big difference in terms of the sense of, I guess, safety, right? Safety or sense of confidence in, you know, what's happening for them. Yes. As well as just education and information. Because if they're in a community center and their doctor doesn't know what graft-versus-host disease is, then that person might diagnose it as something totally different, mm -hmm. which could have, you know, repercussions that could be fairly significant. Yes. I just think everyone needs to collaborate. I couldn't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. And what about advocating for yourself? Any thoughts on that? I think you touched on it a little bit, but is any anything else you'd like to add? Yeah. Like I said before, you know, patients are the experts of themselves and their bodies. And the relationship within the clinic setting, the medical clinic setting is so specific. It feels kind of scripted sometimes because there are things that the doctors ask and there are things that the patients talk about. So sometimes there's stuff that gets missed or left out or forgotten or, you know, just not said. And so mm -hmm. there can be very, very large issues that aren't being addressed that really need to be. And so advocating for yourself 
I find is a way to help bridge that gap and create an opportunity for a conversation that is outside of that setting, but that provides information that the doctors need, that the patients need. And so advocating and also getting involved with organizations that provide advocacy opportunities, you know, one of the things that I found to be very useful and important in the process for myself, as far as advocacy and my own patient experience is education. Mm -hmm. I and my family have educated ourselves. I have a textbook. I have an actual textbook (laughs) on graft versus host disease and I read it. I know it's nerdy. I've read it. But so, I mean, that's the thing in order to advocate effectively for me, that's my process. I need to educate myself. Mm -hmm. And there are a bunch of different ways that people can do that. You know, like they can come to your website. They can, you know, you have books, you have all the stuff, this podcast, there are a lot of different ways that people can educate themselves And I think, you know, they don't need a textbook, but I think that, you know, that can help with the advocacy efforts and the patient's confidence in their ability to advocate for themselves. And the other thing that I think with that is that, and this might sound kind of goofy, but I connect worth and advocacy, self-worth and advocacy. Okay. So somebody who struggles with self-worth, a sense of Mm self-worth is not as likely going to advocate for him or herself as somebody who does. I can see that. Yeah. So I think that that's one of the things that's really important that kind of goes back to what we were talking about a bit before is this mind-body-spirit connection. You have to take care of yourself mentally and emotionally because, you know, a person's sense of identity can be really uh, shattered mm-hmm. when it comes to a diagnosis like this, especially when it's long-term. And so figuring out who you are and what that means for you Mm -hmm. and redefining a sense of self-worth or just beginning to define a sense of self-worth will really help with advocacy and moving forward in life and creating the life that you want because you can totally do that. It might look different, but you know, it's kind of like the thing, there are 20 different ways to get to California. You still get to California. Uh Uh-huh. You know, it's just a matter of what works for you. But really important for me is that idea of, you know, doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what's happened, you have worth. Amen to that. You know, another thing I might mention is I see a lot of these closed Facebook groups and opportunities for people to share. And it's so inspiring to see the camaraderie and the yeah. just, you know, someone will throw a question out. And I encourage listeners to mm-hmm. find out about some of these closed Facebook groups because it's it's all your peers. Mm-hmm. My heart is so warmed. I, I have access to one of them and I just, I, it gives me ideas for shows. It gives yeah. us ideas for programs, but I also see this support system. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of which, we have a peer mentor support system that we love, we would love, love to hear from people that want to be a peer or want some assistance because we have all these uh, mentors on call, standing by, wanting to talk. And that's what basically you're doing today, Meredith. You're sharing your heart and your soul about this because you have walked this walk for a long time. Mm-hmm. So as we're wrapping things up, I do have a question. Is there another question, I should say? (laughs) Is there a common denominator that stands out in your mind about 
how so many of the people you get to meet, how they get through it. And I know you've covered a lot, Mm -hmm. but is there any other uh, last final thoughts on coping? Well, as far as common denominators and people who I've met and had the, you know, the opportunity to get to know a little bit or just even met briefly, perseverance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's perseverance is, is one of the things. And it, you know, sometimes there are people who are really like motivated to head in the advocacy avenue. And then there are other people who just want to go about daily life, regular life, and don't want to do that. But everybody is persistent and perseveres. And there there's a determination that I see that I think is, I don't know if it's something that develops as part of this process because of what has happened, but people just keep pushing through and pushing through and pushing through. And I think that going alongside of that is the concept of hope and, you know, this, mm-hmm. this concept of, okay, today might be like a little bit tricky or today might not be the best day in the world, but that doesn't mean that tomorrow will be like this. And I can have hope for what my life will look like and that it will look beautiful. And, you know, I think having those things seem to be pretty consistent in the people who I've talked to. It reminds me of, and I say this to people that I work with in my work all the time, because I think it applies not just to transplant survivors, but to everybody is there's a lovely little old lady, Buddhist nun, Pema Chodron, and she's awesome. I love her books. I love all of her stuff. I don't know if I'm plugging her accidentally. I'm not sure. No, yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. You're going to have to spell that for me, but okay. it'll definitely go yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, well, she, <laughs> yeah she's, she's super cool. And she has for years written a number of books. She does talks and presentations and stuff like this. But one of the things that she said that I recently heard, on, I think on a podcast or something, was that you know life is basically a series of falling apart and then coming back together and falling apart yeah. and coming back together again. And as soon as we can recognize that that's what life is, the easier it will become. Wow. That's what we're doing. You know, we're just going through life falling apart, coming back together. And that I think is key in navigating this process and this journey for sure. Oh, Meredith, I I really love that. That is going to be a big part of our, uh, even our teaser to get people to listen to you because I truly believe that as well. Yeah. And I just wanted to admit what we had one uh, gentleman, a caregiver, Jim Bolger uh, in our caregiving season and he said something that I just always think about too. You know, it's the celebrating the small milestones. Mm-hmm. You know, his wife Nancy loved to garden, and her doctor didn't wasn't comfortable with her gardening. But the doctor said, "You know what? Double glove up and get out there for fifteen to thirty minutes. I don't want you out there for an hour." Mm-hmm. And her husband Jim he monitored her. You know, and she got the victory of being able to do it, but she was still being compliant and doing what was best for her. Mm-hmm. But it was a win. Yeah. And she could walk to the mailbox and back, which she couldn't mm-hmm. do, you know, a few months earlier. So I really believe that all of this is so important. And I thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, I think you gosh. and I could keep talking for another we, hour. We could, I know. <laughs> Easily. This could go on for a very long time, but, which I think is great. I love talking to you. Oh, I love talking to you too. Thank you for sharing your heart and soul today. Absolutely. Well, and thank you. And I want to thank the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link for the opportunity. I mean, it's just, I, I can't thank you enough. This has been wonderful. Wow. Thanks, Meredith. Yeah. Thank you. 
This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. Feel free to share this episode via text, email, or social media. Don't miss an episode. Follow Marrow Masters in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or click on the link in our show notes.